and I'll have a lot of references but you needn't look them up if you're dubious you can watch the tape back and uh, go and have a look then. So this is the fifth in the series looking back to the early church and applying that to how the church should look in our time and culture. We've looked at how we should be led and fed, how we should worship, how we should pray and how we should evangelise and stay united. Now we want to move on to determine what else we can learn from the early churches and to help us worship and serve in the modern day. Today we're going to consider how the early church was involved in, wait for it, giving, providing hospitality and serving, three things that certainly go together. If I was fearful about some of the others, this is probably more so. No, I don't think that's true. So we're going to look at a giving church first. But before we get into the detail, like we did the last couple, we're going to have a look at a few quotes on giving. Maybe they'll not be what you expect them to be. So from Andrew Murray, he says, The world asks, what does a man own? Christ asks, how does he use it? From Billy Graham, God has given us two hands, one to receive with and one to give with. From the late Tim Keller, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but are all God's. Mm -hmm. From C.S. Lewis, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Mm -hmm. From Adrian Rogers, for Margaret, you used to listen Adrian Rogers? No, no. I think we did. God does not need us to give him any of our money he owns everything tithing is God's way to grow Christians the famous quote from Jim Elliot I think we probably could all quote what surprised me I never knew quite where it was from it was found in his daily journal after he was murdered he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose of course, there has to be a couple from Spurgeon. God has a way of giving by the cartload to those who give to him by the shovel load. It sounds like Spurgeon, doesn't it? And a second one from him. In all my years of service for my Lord, I have discovered a truth that has never failed and has never been compromised. That truth is that it is beyond the realms of possibility that one has the ability to outgive God. Even if I give the whole of my wealth to him, he will find a way to give it back to me in more than I've given. And finally, a very challenging thought from John Wesley. When a man becomes a Christian, he becomes industrious, trustworthy and prosperous. That may not necessarily be monetarily prosperous, presumably, uh, now, if that man, when he gets all he can and saves all he can, does not give all he can, I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than that for that man. That's a bit, <laughs> bit rough, isn't it? Money in churches can be a very sensitive subject. You certainly wouldn't want to be the church treasurer of a church, would you? But controversially, Antioch, the church that we're really looking at, was at the centre of a display of giving. And we read about it in this way. And in these days, prophets came out from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. It does make you wonder what's going to happen in modern day, doesn't it? Eh? Sent it to Judea and Jerusalem. One preacher spoke one week on giving, and as he left, a member of the congregation said, you're always preaching about money. And he thought about it, and he thought, I can't remember the last time I ever did. But that's probably the way we react, isn't it? And don't worry, it's not going to be like that tonight. I've had an occasion when somebody has come up to me and said that they would see whether they felt led to give. In the meantime, the church was still funding the preaching that he was listening to every week of the year. We've seen in the quotes that God does not need anyone's wealth. We've also seen that our wealth is not our own. Everything we have comes from God. We have a God who is even willing to give his own son the ultimate gift. So we have to ask, what are we willing to give? I'm going to split it into three bits, the giving section, if you're making notes. We have a generous gift, so what does that mean for us? And then thirdly, it's not all about money. So we have a generous God. Sometimes we're generous to those that we like. Ask the grandchildren. Oh, no, don't ask the grandchildren. But God is generous to the whole of mankind. This struck me when listening to Norman at the, on his talk on the harvest. Right from the very first chapter in the Bible, God gave Adam and Eve, quote, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28 also in the next verse, see I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. And I have to say I didn't really read this and understand it for 50 years I think. But in the modern age you can imagine some entrepreneur working out what he can make from such a bountiful supply. Oh, I've given seed, I've given this, I've given that, how can I charge? But God gave all of this freely with a loving heart. Then what struck me when Norman spoke, and although the flood was a disaster for mankind at the time, barring Noah and his family, as a result, mankind was supplied with other bountiful resources that wouldn't have been there, but for the flood, oil, coal, precious materials. Of course, God could have done it any way he chose, but without the flood, some of those things wouldn't have been there. Also after the flood, and this is the bit that I didn't really realise, there was a subtle change and shift in God's provision for man. In Genesis chapter 9, 2 and 3 we read, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, and on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things even as the green herbs. And I didn't realise there was that gap at the time, but clearly it's there. God does not just supply things to us uh, who are his friends or to those who love him, but even to those who are his enemies, to those who hate him 
or even at best disregard him just amazes me you see programs on the telly which you think are great and all of a sudden they throw a blasphemy in and to them it means nothing if you look at the top of the page it would never even say there was anything in it and yet they'd think oh we better tell them there's moderate language or whatever that's the way the world regards Christ God does not supply sparingly but lavishly and he doesn't supply things that are second grade you go to the shops now you find wonky carrots <coughs> I think they're quite fine but they're difficult to cut but he declares that everything is good first time of course some critics will point to famines in some parts of the world but inevitably these occur because of man's inhumanity to man because of wars and because of greed from those in leadership although God gives generously to all people he gives more specifically to his own people so in the Old Testament God said to Abraham all the land that you see I give to you and your offspring forever does make you realize what's going on at the moment doesn't it but in the New Testament we see the true abundance of God's giving to his people and this verse even if we ask the teenagers they'd all quote it back to us for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life this truly does emphasize the immensity of God's generosity to us it's only when we see the weight of sin that Jesus had to bear at Calvary that we fully understand the staggering nature of God's love for us and his generosity in giving. Paul emphasizes it in Romans 6:23. The wages of sin of death is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The generosity of God is most clearly seen in that gift of his only begotten son, John MacDonald, May made this point early in his sermon a couple of weeks ago the act of generosity was planned before time involved all three parts of the trinity also John pointed out that there was a generous gift based on his supreme love for mankind to put it in modern day terms just assume that you would planned a spectacular gift for the one you love you've planned it for months it costs you dearly However, when you present the gift to the loved one, it's opened, wrapping paper, thrown away, gift thrown into the corner of the room. It's really what happens when an unbeliever totally disregards the gift of Jesus and maybe even puts him down. It's a rejection of a priceless gift from a loving God. It's therefore not unloving for Paul to remind us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death because the offer of eternal life has been rejected. Not only did God the Father relinquish his Son from the glories of heaven for 33 years, but he also made provision for us when the Son returns to his heavenly glory. And then in Acts 2:38, Peter declares this, Repent and let every one of you be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit so he made provision he then fulfilled it and then when Christ had to return to heaven he provided us with the Holy Spirit so there's the generosity of God so second part of this how should we give 
in the light of God's provision for all mankind and more specifically to his people, we need to ask what should our response be to a God who is so generous and who lavishes on us such wonderful kindness. As we saw in the quotes at the start, God doesn't need anything from us. Indeed, he reminds us in Psalm 50, 10 and 11, obviously to be reviewed by Phil or Daniel in about 2029, 2030, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. We've got an old phrase which we all know, I think. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Tell that to some at Christmas time. But, well, this is not a modern phrase, actually. It comes from Paul in Acts 20, verse 35. And there he tells us this was actually his saying of Jesus. Again, something that sort of surprised me. Obviously, you don't know enough yet. There's also a sense that when we've received much, we should give much back as a matter of gratitude. This is a principle that was established way back in the Old Testament. Moses instructed the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 26 and 1 to 11 to be grateful for the land that God had given them and to bring offerings of the first fruits and tithes as a measure of their gratitude. When Moses spoke about tithing, and don't worry, I'm not going to major on it, he gave three reasons why people should give and give generously. The three reasons were specific to them, but can equally be applied to us. So the three reasons that he gave are these. To provide for the Levites. You will remember they're the ones who officiated over the worship. So the modern day is for the provision of money for the ministers of the gospel. And then he said, you should provide for aliens, widows and orphans. And for those of you who are younger, maybe aliens are not people who've come from a spaceship. They're people from a different country. Uh, they should be provided for. And I remember Eddie and Sheila doing this upstairs in a uh, Sunday school lesson once. And the provision God made for those who were effectively strangers to the people of Israel was incredible. So it challenges us. Modern day, provide for benevolent reasons and for works of evangelism. And thirdly, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Comes from Deuteronomy 14.29. And in a modern day, there isn't really an equivalent. It's the same. He will bless you in all the works of your hands. So if giving to the church is a good principle, established throughout the Bible, how should we give? And I'm not going into percentages, I'm not going into whether it's right or wrong, whether you do or you don't, just some principles. So I think there are probably six principles. I may be wrong. Yeah, six. So firstly, cheerfully, giving cheerfully. This is established in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 to 8. So let each of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Secondly, willingly, but according to our resources. Paul guides us on this in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. This was put into practice when the Corinthian church gave 
to that needy Judean church they gave each according to his ability that's what we read from this is not just a New Testament principle though Moses asked the same of the people in Exodus 35 they'd got a tabernacle to build he said take from amongst you an offering to the Lord whoever is of a willing heart let him bring an offering to the Lord as a result and this was the treasurer's perfect solution you'll see why Moses had to stop them giving so great was their generosity well take your own modern interpretation let neither man nor woman do any more for the work for the offering of the sanctuary and the people restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done indeed it was too much what a god and then thirdly thoughtfully we should thoughtfully consider our giving in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 Paul says on the first day of the week let each of you lay something aside storing up as he may prosper so the idea is that giving should not be random but thought through and should once again be in line with what can be afforded by the individual and then fourthly as a commitment to God the gracious giver and a commitment to your fellow believers we see in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 3 which was again the bit that we read where Paul commends the churches of Macedonia for I bear witness that according to their ability yes and beyond their ability they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Fifthly, and this you can challenge me on as you like, I have put down we should be utilising state help where it's legitimate. Well, we're committed from Jesus to uh, give to Caesar everything Caesar. Well, instead of Caesar, it's uh, Mr Hunt as he separates out his budget and he tells us you've got to pay your taxes and as good Christians we pay our taxes but I don't believe then that they had gift aid at that time we currently have a government that's willing to support charities and we should take advantage for it of it as long as it's available and you could say the amount of money that's thrown into evangelism and children's work here if you totted up the value to the local council or the government it's far more than the gift aid that we get back now I can't give you a scriptural verse for gift aid but I think it's a relevant point and lastly to bring praise to God and not to man we're reminded of the widow in Mark 12 in verses 41-43 it says now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put much in then one poor widow came and threw in two mites for the help of those who don't know what two mites is it's a quadrants that really helps you a lot but it wasn't a lot of money so he called his disciples to himself and said to them assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who gave to the treasury what a statement for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had. So, personal reflection. When I was first at work, one of the managers called me aside and said, you will see the payroll every month. True. 
He says, never use it, what you see in it, for your own advantage and never share it with anyone else. And the same principle should apply to a treasurer. You see the giving, never judge the giver, never share that with anyone else. So when we give, this is a private matter between us and God. Also, it is for the meeting of the needs within the church, but more than that, it's an expression of thanks to God. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 9, 12 and 13. As with so many things in the Christian faith, our giving is really a reflection of our relationship with God, a reflection of our gratitude to him for all his generosity towards us. But the third point, we said there were three, giving is not just about money. I think it's necessary to emphasise that when we speak of giving, we're not solely thinking of financial giving. Some may have less money than others, but far more time. Some may have less money, but far more gifts in the way of creative talents, maybe. The list is endless. If God has gifted us and we give back in one form or another, we're obeying his word and give back just a portion of what he's blessed us with. So that's the end of giving without any mention of what we should be doing about tithing or whatever. But it's true. God is generous to us. We should reflect that in the way that we treat him. So I want to briefly touch on hospitable church. Was Antioch a hospitable, welcoming church? Well, we don't have a definitive answer. But we do know that Paul and Barnabas stayed at Antioch for lengthy periods. And I don't think there was probably a Premier Inn at the end of the road or a Millen Carter at the end of the street. So we assume that these faithful men were given accommodation by members of Antioch or at least were provided with meals. Later on in the Bible we read John comments Gaius to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. This activity is also commended in the book of Hebrews. I love this verse. In chapter 13, we read, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. We know the verse, but what does it really mean in practice? Could it still happen today? Why not? The Bible is stacked full of examples of hospitality being given. If I asked around and I'm not going to, don't worry. Uh, there would be lots and lots of references uh, to ministers being given hospitality or Christian workers, but also hospitality between God's people. I'll just give you a few examples. So Abraham. Abraham gave hospitality to three men who just turned up at his tent. Those three men went on to proclaim that Sarah would have a child. Rahab. She showed her faith by giving lodging to those who weren't friends, not even just strangers, but actually enemy spies. She was rewarded with salvation. The Shunammite woman gave Elijah hospitality, and she got a reward twice. First, he granted her a son when she was childless, and then she had him raised to life again. Mary and Martha, in spite of the which one was the most hospitable, uh, constantly gave the Lord hospitality and were blessed with having their brother raised to life and in being able to call Jesus their friend. Cornelius, 
in Acts offered hospitality to Peter as a result of gratitude for Peter's preaching which led to the salvation of Cornelius and his whole household and Lydia saved by the preaching of Paul and then said to him if you consider me a believer in the Lord come stay at my house so what does that mean for us hospitality is a gift some find it easier to offer hospitality than others but don't think you should only offer hospitality to a minister who's led you to the Lord as in one of those examples or expect that if you offer hospitality something spectacular will happen however I guarantee that if you're a welcoming visiting minister into your home well now initially it may be daunting you will get to know them more as a friend than just a minister and afterwards you'll look back on the experience as pleasurable so I think those things and I said at the start we're going to do three subjects well the last one's a taster if you like if it was a television program it would be next week well not next week but sometime in the future these are all aspects of serving everything we have considered here falls under that global heading of service so just a taster for more on this subject if you don't like sport my apologies but if you're younger and do enjoy sport I want to bring you a little story about Jurgen Klopp, who is the... Oh, yeah. Well, there's a few. Liverpool manager. And I believe, in some cases, defined as a Christian. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. But he says this, and this is with grateful thanks to Steve Robinson, an author. On Jurgen's first day at the club, he gathered the team in the canteen, along with all the support staff who were the cleaners, the admin assistants, the groundsmen and so on. Then he asked the superstar players if they knew the names of those employees. The response was a bit embarrassing. Klopp said that that needed to change. He told the players that without the staff serving them, success on the pitch would never happen. Each of the support staff also wore the team badge on their uniforms, he said and were a vital part of Liverpool FC family and the success of the club. I'm sure it's true at Charlton as well, and uh, who else you? West Ham. Uh, from that moment, the players would eat with the support staff, get to know them, and everyone would serve each other because he said, we are Liverpool, and that means more than anything else. So as I come to an end, I say, well, we at Free Grace Baptist Church, we are Christ and we need to serve him and others. I'm just going to sum that up quickly for those who weren't listening or uh, need a summary to remind themselves. So how do we do? Quick summary. Giving to Christian work is commanded for believers. Giving to God's work should be willingly, cheerfully, and for the benefit of God, fellow believers, and those in need. Giving may be financial, and it needs to be, or the church doesn't carry on but it also may be giving of time or use of your gifts. Hospitality was a regular event throughout the Bible. Invariably, hospitality will lead to blessing for the giver. And giving and hospitality are both aspects of service. So as we said at the end of last time, may Christ be lifted up.